Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the blessing and gift of this day. Thank you for being present here with us, Lord. We pray that this morning as we speak about your word, that you would open those doors which we have locked to you in our lives, Lord, those places we have walled off and seek to keep you out of. We pray that you would pry into those places, Lord, that you would shine your light in the darkness that you would set us free from bondage and sin and death, and that you would release us to serve you, to worship you. Lord, put your words in our hearts and upon our lips, and help us to be faithful in proclaiming them. And we pray that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Morning. Morning! It is great to see you all today. Well, I brought in a marble today. I know I used to have a bunch more, but I seem to have lost my marbles. I don't know. I mean, I think you all probably knew that before I did. But I looked all over for them, and I couldn't find any except for just one marble. You know, but when you have a bunch of marbles on the floor and you step on it, is that good? No, you often end up on your tea kettle, don't you? Yeah, it goes pretty quick. And you can experience that outdoors as well, not only in your house. But also if you go hiking on some of the trails around here, right? You get a little decomposing granite on, or sand or dirt on top of some rock and a little slope. Oh, man, that is treacherous. Like out around the river. Boy, there's some dangerous times to be had out there, aren't there? Uh, you can be, you know, walking merrily along one second and the next second you're either on your bottom on the ground or at the bottom of the hill, right? One way or the other. But you know what? Actually, that's not as dangerous as another form of walking on marbles down a steep slope, right? I mean, because you can avoid often those trails. You can choose to take safer trails. But sometimes in our life, we end up on a slope, ethically, where we are like on marbles on on a slippery slope. We end up in a place and we feel like we are unable to stop ourselves as we progress with decisions and choices, which lead us into more and more typically poorer and poorer decisions. David, King David, seems to be in a situation like this in our Old Testament lesson for today. You all know King David, right? Greatest king of Israel. Superhero. Multi-platinum selling artist. Wrote the 23rd Psalm and other hits. Right, You can read them in the, the Psalms. Uh, He is a courageous warrior. Who did he kill? Goliath. Famously fought the giant and killed Goliath. Vanquished the enemies of Israel. This David, he is the one who was the Lord's chosen king of Israel. He is the one who unified Israel and made it great. Yet here in our passage from 2 Samuel, we see that David was great not only at good things, but he was great at bad things too. Right? He excelled at them. 
It begins with a poetic warning that tells us that troubled waters lie ahead. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, at home. Was he supposed to be at home? No. It's the time of the year when kings go out to battle. But David, he's at home. Because back then, kings didn't just make policy decisions and send out their militaries, you know, to enforce those decisions. Instead, kings went out and fought with their soldiers. They led from, not necessarily from the front, but certainly from the battleground. They would have been there drawing up plans, rallying the troops, making decisions, leading their soldiers. But David, he's got kingly things to do, I guess, back at home, like nap. The Bible says that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Do you think that's true? Yeah, and we see that in David. He's kind of chilling out. He just wakes up from a nap, real busy day schedule. And he gets up and he goes up on his roof. And what does he see from his roof? Quite the view, right? He sees this lady right, bathing out there in her, on her house or wherever she is, in her yard. He sees her bathing. And David has a choice at that point. What can David do? Turn away and leave, right? Is that what David does? No. It says in the second part of that, it says first he sees the woman bathing. Then it says the woman was beautiful. I think the separation of those two things probably is that engagement of David's mind. Where he notices not just, hey, there's a woman bathing out there, but hey, she's good looking too. David has a choice at this point. What is his choice? Leave again, right? He can leave, and this time, you know, he's more mentally engaged. It might be more difficult, but he can still leave. He can still confess his sin. And there'll be no sign of it outside, right? He can just say, like, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and move on. Is that what David does? No, you've read the story, right? At this point, David wants to know who she is. That's not a good sign, is it? Uh, he's just wondering for reference, though. He's not actually interested, right? So he wants to find out who she is. And it's reported to him that Bathsheba, the wife, is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this might seem like a meaningless piece of information. I mean, what is Uriah the Hittite to you and me? Right, nobody. But to David, that should have meant something. Because Uriah was a member of David's inner circle of warriors. He was a part of the group they called David's Mighty Men. 37 hand-picked the best soldiers in Israel. Men of valor, men of integrity and strength who fought out for who fought for the nation of Israel. They were his best. His best. And some of these guys, some of these mighty men had been with David since before he was a king. They had been with him in the early days, they had been with him as King Saul was out chasing them around. They were out hiding out in, in caves and, and moving around together secretly. They would have formed deep bonds of friendship, camaraderie. They had bled together. They had had sleepless nights hiding in caves together. These men, these David's mighty men, Uriah is one of them. Also, 
Uriah's house is close to the palace, right? And when you've got a house close to the palace, that typically means that you're of high estate, right? You're one of, uh, you're a high official. And so Uriah would not have been just some kind of nobody. It's not like they said, you know, Bob the gutter guy or something who David might not have known. He says he's Uriah, the Hittite. David would have known this guy. And at that point, if David had any thoughts of indiscretion in his mind, they should have been banished. Well, even if they said he was Bob, the gutter guy's wife, he should have been, should have stopped. But especially when it's like his buddy, right? You'd think something would stop David. You'd think something would hold him back. But David's firmly on those marbles on that slippery slope at this point, just rolling away, feeling like he can't turn back. So instead of turning aside and stopping with that bit of information, David calls for her. He sins for her. And Bathsheba has no choice in this matter. It's not like she can say, I respectfully decline. Right? There's no option. She's stuck. So she comes to the palace, and David sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. And now David has the opportunity to come clean, doesn't he? Right? Oh my gosh. I've done this. She's pregnant. I'm sorry. Come clean. Couldn't he come clean at that point? Yes, he could have. He could have. Is that what David chooses to do? No, David's mind's working overtime now, right? He's like, oh, okay, uh, Uriah. I got to get Uriah. Right? Why does he want to get Uriah? So he thinks if he brings Uriah back, Uriah will sleep with his wife. It might be a little discrepancy in the dates of conception and stuff, but maybe it'll work out. And even if the baby looks like David, David can say, not mine. Obviously, it's Uriah's, right? Obviously. Does this sound like an episode of Jerry Springer or like Geraldo? Or, I mean, it really has that, the, the Old Testament has that earthiness to it, right? Which is really neat because it takes people in their lives, good and bad, and lays it out before us. And here we have David's indiscretion laid out before us. Not so we can make fun of it or not so we can feel better than him, but so that we can see that while David was broken, sinful, unrighteous, he used his power as king for his own good. God is not that way. Let's get into it now more. So Uriah comes home, right? Comes back, but instead of going home to his wife, He reports to David and then sleeps just outside the palace with the other servants of David. When David asks asks Uriah about this, he's like, how come you didn't go to your wife? What's going on, Uriah? Uriah says, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, which are tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. The ark, the army, they're all out in tents. How can I come back and relax at home? It's not okay. I'm supposed to be out there with the guys, and we're supposed to be fighting for Israel. Hint, hint, David, you are too, right? How can I come back and just relax? That's not okay. Uriah has a code. It's a soldier's code, right? But it's a code. 
that says, look, this is not okay. When I'm supposed to be doing my soldierly things, I do my soldierly things. So David's like, oh man, okay, plan C now. He's got to figure out how to get Uriah to do this thing. And so he gets Uriah drunk, hoping that when Uriah is liquored up, he'll forget his virtues and go home to his wife. But no, Uriah is faithful when drunk or when sober. The next morning, David can't do anything more with this faithful guy. Right? He can't. There's no way he can get him to fall into his plans of covering up his sins. And so what does he plan to do? Kill him. Right? He writes a note to the commander of the military, Joab, who is another ruthless guy. And then Uriah carries it with him when he leaves. The letter, carried in Uriah's own hand, instructs Joab to have Uriah killed to put him in the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, and then to pull back from him and leave him there fighting alone against the enemies of Israel so that he can be killed. And so then David can have all his problems go away. So he thinks. And that is exactly what takes place. Now with that unpleasant detail out of the way, right, with the whole, like, the fact that Bathsheba's married, um, David can now have Bathsheba as his wife. Everything is hunky-dory, isn't it? What do you mean, no? That's right. While David thought he had pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and no one was any wiser of his indiscretion, someone was watching. Someone saw every detail of what David had done. And who was that person? The Lord God. The Lord God had seen You know, because if we didn't know that, we would think from this story that if you have enough power, if if you're ruthless enough, if you have enough influence, you can just cover up your sins and move on through life with no problems. But that's not what happens. Because the Lord was watching. And the Lord cares for righteousness. David could not fool God with his machinations. As a result, pain and suffering enter David's life, and his family suffers for his sin as well. The child that Bathsheba is pregnant with dies ultimately. And then there is a coup that is led against David later on by David's own son Absalom, who kicks David off the throne, moves into his house, sleeps with his wives and concubines. I mean, it is like a massive failure of a family right there. Right? We think we have challenges in our family. This is like big time. And the, the author of Samuel says that it's because of David's indiscretion. The fact that he stole another man's wife and murdered that man. And now if we only look this far, we would then assume that God is just a God who punishes sin with no mercy. Because even years after what David had done, there is still brokenness in his family. Still challenge, still death. But there's more to it than that. For David repents. And after the death of their first child, God gives David and Bathsheba a second child. And they name this child Solomon. Bingo, Solomon. The Solomon who would be the next king of Israel. The Solomon who would build the temple of the Lord and usher in a time of peace for Israel. This child 
is the fruit of David and Bathsheba, a relationship conceived in brokenness and yet redeemed by God. He brings about healing despite the failings of humankind. In the life of David, we see human failing, divine judgment, and unexpected and undeserved grace. We see the righteous God judge righteously, and we see the broken and wounded forgiven and unbound from their sin. Now what in the world does this mean for us? Well, we might not be the king of Israel. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that about you all, right? Unless any of you are royalty in here. But we are people with both very great things in our lives and very broken things as well. We've all walked on that slippery slope of marbles and fallen. We carry wounds in our life that are nearly impossible for us to express. Yet God wants to set us free from them. You see, David wasn't the greatest king in Israel's history. There was another king, a descendant of David, who did not abuse his power, but humbled himself and died so that you and I could be set right with God, so that we could no longer be crushed under the burden and weight of our sin, but so that we could be set free. Today, may we receive the amazing gift of reconciliation that God offers to us. May we unlock to him the broken parts of our heart and allow him to see that darkness so that he can shine his light and put his healing balm upon it. May we come and kneel before the one true King, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are the righteous king. Thank you that you did not leave us, Lord, to broken kings, but that you sent your, true, your son, Lord, the true king, to come and set us free. Lord God, we confess to you our failings. We confess to you, Lord, our selfishness, our greed, Lord, our lack of concern for others. Lord, the sin that drives our hearts. We pray, Lord God, that you would set us free from this. We lay it at the foot of your cross and ask that you might take it from us. Lord, unburden us from the weight of guilt from this sin, Lord. And we pray that as we are set free, that we are loosed from this, that we would go out into this world proclaiming your goodness, your mercy, and your love. Lord, and sharing your hope with others, that they might know your deliverance as well. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for loving us so much. Help us, Lord, to love each other and to love this world you have given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.